Okay, we don't have one of those to deal with at my church. Uh, it is a joy to be with you guys this morning. Uh, we are very thankful to be here, very thankful for the opportunity. Um, I'll take a minute before I pray and just, uh, for those of you who weren't here this morning at the breakfast hour, uh, my name is Nate Prater. My wife Amanda, daughters Josie, uh, Susanna, and then Danny just took off to the elementary age class. But uh, we are thankful to be here this morning. Um, as many of you may know, we are prayerfully uh, considering and praying through with the elders of Embassy Church about the potential to be a part of the church plan in Woodstock. And so, uh, again, overjoyed to be here this morning. As I was thinking about what to share, I'd been listening to some podcasts recently about church planning. And one of the podcasts was very helpful. One of the men was speaking to a conference geared for church planners. And he was talking to this group of uh, church planters, potential church planners, pastors who had planted churches. And as he was talking about getting ready to plant a church, one of the things he said is that it's very easy to focus on the what and the how. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? How are we going to be different than the other churches? And he said, what people really need to hear is why. Why do you want to plant a church? And so as you heard, the sermon title this morning is Compelled by Christ's Love. And, and that is the simple answer to why it is that we would want to plant a church and really that any of us would want to do anything in the name of Christ. We are compelled by his love. And so I'm going to pray now and then we're going to read through a section of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, um, this morning... What each one of us need more than the food that sustains our body, more than the water that we drink, more than the air that we breathe, oh God, is we need to hear from you. We need to hear from you, and to that end, we are eternally grateful for the gift of the scriptures, for the word of God that has been given to us, that reveals to us the revelation of Jesus Christ, how you are reconciling mankind in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, oh God, that this morning you would not leave us unchanged, but that this morning, as a sheer act of mercy and grace, that you would conform us more into the image of Christ, that we would, Lord, for some of us, trust for the first time in the Lord Jesus, for others, that our faith would be strengthened, that our walk would be strengthened, that our testimonies would be strengthened and that we would be burdened, Lord, afresh, anew, and in deeper ways to share this message of reconciliation with a lost world. Lord, burden our hearts for the world. So many who don't know Christ in a culture that is rapidly, in many ways, moving away from anything having to do with the gospel. We pray that you would grant revival within your church, that you would be growing your church, Lord Jesus, so we ask now that you would illumine our hearts, that we could indeed know the love of Christ, which surpasses understanding. Father, we come to you dependent, relying on the Holy Spirit to do that work in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 through the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul writes, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died 
and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the word of God. I want to take just a minute. I know you guys haven't been in the book of 2 Corinthians to just give a brief introduction, uh, introduction to help us understand what's going on. What has led the Apostle Paul to make this statement? We see in chapters 1 and 2, Paul's basic introduction as he begins to address the church. Paul writes to them. And you've got to love this about the epistles, the, the personal nature that we see in the Bible. But Paul writes to them because they're wondering, Paul, why haven't you come to us, man? We heard you were coming. You're not here. What's going on? So Paul writes to address that. Paul tells them, in light of his trip to Troas and how the Lord opened a door for ministry, and yet he didn't have any peace in his heart because he didn't see Titus. And so he tells them about that. God, Paul tells them that even when things don't go according to our plan, God is still in control. We can rest in that. God always, Paul said, leads us in triumph in Christ Jesus. Now, without getting too deep into that, I find it absolutely amazing that Paul says, this is what's going on. I had these plans, man, and they were good plans, I thought, for the gospel. And this is what we were going to do, and things didn't go at all according to my plan. And yet, God opened a door for the ministry of the gospel. And Paul says, that open door for the ministry of the gospel is God leading us in triumph. So that the triumphant life is the life that is lived led by God the Spirit for the sake of gospel ministry. It's chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 3, Paul is talking about the idea that this knowledge of God, which we have received, is made known through the new covenant. And the new covenant, Paul says, has an exceeding glory far beyond the glory of the old covenant, even though the old covenant was so glorious that after Moses received it, you remember what happened? He came down the mountain and he radiated the glory of God. He literally glowed. And then he veiled his face because of that so that the sons of Israel would not focus on the glory of the old covenant as the goal or the end. Chapter 4, Paul says that we have been entrusted with this ministry of, of new covenant, ministry, reconciliation with God, ambassadors for Christ. And then he says, but, and many of us understand this, feel this, recognize this, we have this treasure, Paul says, in earthen vessels which means that we are going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Persecution, ailments, pains, all sorts of things. Even suffer unto death, Paul says, and yet we don't lose heart. And that's where chapter 5 picks up. At the beginning of chapter 5, Paul tells them, you know what, it's really okay if we die. Now that's not a message that we hear very often, especially in our culture, right? Think about it. Modern medicine, by the way, of which I am very grateful to God. I thank God all of the time that providentially we live when we do in God's 
redemptive plan and all of this. I thank God for modern medicine. But modern medicine in many ways becomes mankind's attempt to subvert the inevitability of death. And Paul says, no, no, listen, as Christians, it's really okay if we die because if we die instantly as Christians in the presence of the Lord, and that is where our great hope and our desires find their fulfillment in the presence of Jesus. And so Paul says, it's really okay if we die. And actually, we're not focused primarily on the healing of these bodies. We're not focused primarily on the maintenance of these bodies, but what all of us are actually longing for. And I don't know if we've thought about that this morning or not, but what all of us are actually longing for is the resurrection body that will be ours based on the work of Christ for us. And so as you think about it, we pray, don't we? We pray for God to heal people, our loved ones, our friends, and we should pray that God would even heal our enemies at times, to love them. And yet, the ultimate cry of our heart, as our Lord Jesus taught us to pray, is that he would return and bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven that we would live eternally, never to face the corruption of death in the resurrected bodies. Paul goes on and he says that God is the one who has prepared us for this in verse 5. In verses 6 and 7, Paul then says that we are therefore in good courage with a upbeat heart, as it were, walking by faith and not by sight. Now, I don't know you guys very well. My wife will attest to this. This verse to me is absolutely critical to what it means to be a Christian. I mean, there are times when when what it looks like before us, the, the, the events of the days and the weeks that we're facing just seem like there is no way that this is good for me. How in the world is this good for me? And at that moment, I have a couple options. I can, one, walk by sight. In other words, I can make decisions based on what I see outside of what God tells me. And many times, the world is overwhelming when we walk by sight, isn't it? We face obstacles on a daily basis. And, and what Paul says here is that we do not walk by sight, but by faith. We live our lives by faith, trusting primarily in the revealed will of God through the word of God, which focuses us on the Son of God. And so we walk, as it were, we live our lives trusting richly and deeply in the promises of God that come to us through the gospel message. Verse 9, Paul then basically says that being in the presence of Jesus is our greatest desire and hope, and so we always want to please him, whether we are in his presence or whether we're still here on the earth. Verse 10, we want to please him also because we know that someday each one of us, loved ones, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is nobody you have ever met who will get out of the judgment Nobody who will not have to give an account someday. And so because of this, verse 11, Paul says, we persuade people. That's what we're called to do. We are called to live our lives in such a way that the manner in which we live and the speech that comes from us is geared toward the persuasion of men and women of people all ages and in all places away from darkness and into the presence of God through the work of Christ. And then in verse 11, Paul says that our motives are clear to God and we hope to you believers as well. And that brings us to our text. And so today we want to talk about, and I want to share with you a little bit about why we're here and whether or not we end up finding ourselves in Woodstocks or continue serving the Lord elsewhere, this is true of us no matter where we are. We are compelled by Christ's love for us. And so this morning as we look at the text, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see the declaration 
the declaration. Next, we'll move on to the doctrinal foundation. And then finally, we will look at the divine commission. So this morning, first, we want to look at the declaration. We're going to look into verse 14. Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us. And that's the declaration as, as Paul talks about it. And you just think about the laundry list of things that Paul went through. The beatings, the whipping, the shipwrecked, stoned and left for dead. Uh, besides the countless many times that Paul would have been uh, persecuted and pushed away from those who loved him, leaving his faith in Judaism, turning to Christ. And Paul says it is the love of Christ that controls him. Now this word control, this is a, a powerful word, as it were, that Paul uses. And the idea is that that this word was used of when something was held together or bound together, something united together, or something that was pressed in hard around. You've heard the term hard-pressed. If you're hard-pressed by your circumstances, everything is pressing in against you, not always for bad, sometimes for good, as is the case here, but you're pressed in, as it were, into an inevitability that, that something will happen. And then the word, of course, became used in the way to speak of providing the impulse for something, what compelled me. And that's the way that Paul uses it. I was reminded of, uh, right when me and Amanda first got married, I worked in a lumber yard. And so I was low man on the totem pole. So this meant that what I did was, you had people who would come in and they would be picking out their boards. And of course they're looking for that straight board. They want the board that's just right for their purpose. And by the end of the day, these units of lumber were almost unrecognizable as anything put together and neat. And so what we would do is we would drive the forklifts around and we would pick up all of what we called the coals. They were all the warped and crooked boards and we would stack them on the forks as neat as we could. And man, as we were driving these over to a certain spot in the lumber yard, that just looked, it didn't even look like lumber really at that point. Everything was crooked and, but we took it over to this machine. It was called our binding machine. And there was this metal banding that you would wrap around the units of lumber in a number of places. And then there was this Little mechanism, you put the two pieces of the metal banding in there and you cranked this ratchet. And all of the sudden, this wood became more and more bound together. It was hard pressed by this. So as it were, the the unit of lumber was compelled to do and to act a certain way, to do something. And and Paul says really that's what happened is that in, in, in that sense, the love of Christ had affected Paul in such a way that he was compelled or impelled in his life to do these things. Now, the fact that Paul is talking about Christ's love for us primarily, and not primarily our love for Christ, I think becomes absolutely clear in the text. As we read through and we see that it is Jesus who has died on our behalf, it is God who has reconciled us. But we hear verses as well, like 1 John 4.10, when John writes, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or in the Gospel of John, chapter 13 and verse 1, it says this, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And like I said, the rest of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think, clearly demonstrates that it is Christ's love for us that Paul says compels us. Now, of course, that love that Christ has for us becomes the foundation of our love for him. But we can summarize this first statement by saying this. The life of the Christian, 
the mission of the church and any and all activity which brings glory to God is compelled by the unprecedented and unimaginable love that Christ has for his people. This is an unprecedented love. This is a love that is unique of a totally different kind than anything anybody has ever seen before. This is the love of the Son of God, the majesty of heaven eternally reigning on his throne with the full grandeur of the angels of God worshiping him day in and day out, who in humility, as it were, steps down to us. He takes on human flesh so that he can redeem his own creation that has turned against him. Although God had every right to do away with us, Christ in love, unprecedented love, has come to us, taken on our flesh, died on the cross for our sins, that we might know and be reconciled to God. And it's an unimaginable love. It's a love that none of us ever would have come up with. Nobody would have dreamed of doing it this way. And so that is the declaration, Paul says. It is the love of Christ that compels me. And for Amanda and myself and for our girls, and I pray for all of you that that would be the impulse of your life too, that it would be the love of Christ that compels you. I was reading Charles Spurgeon on this. And we're gonna see as we move on to this, there is a doctrinal foundation. And and Spurgeon said, if you are feeling dry this morning, And loved ones, I've been there. Friends, I have been there. I have felt dry in my faith. I've felt as if this great love of Christ is really not affecting me in ways that I knew it should. And and Spurgeon simply said this. A a lot of people, he would say, they want to pull you away from doctrine, from engaging the truths of God's word and, and the scriptures. And Spurgeon said, if you want to be rekindled in that fire, that we need to dive deeper into that. And that moves us on to our second point, the doctrinal foundation Chapter 5, verse 14 in the second half. I'll just read the whole verse again. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. Notice this. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. But notice that those three words, having concluded this. That means that this impelling, compelling force of Christ's love for us, that if it is going to render in our lives activities pleasing to the Lord, activities of fruitfulness in our lives, then there are conclusions to be made. There are doctrinal foundations that must undergird it. And the first stone of the doctrinal foundation that Paul lays out for us is the doctrine of what we call substitutionary atonement. Notice what Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. One died for all for all. That little word for becomes absolutely critical in our understanding of the gospel. It is a word that means in behalf of or for the sake of, for the benefit of. Jesus Christ dies on our behalf for our sake and for our benefit, not because there was anything inherent to him that would have done anything remotely close to warranting his death on the cross. We know that the wages of sin are death And we know that the Son of God in human flesh was sinless, and yet Christ dies for sin, and he does it on our behalf. Three letters in the English language, and upon the concept that's buried in this, this idea of substitutionary atonement, in many ways the gospel rests on this. Without the substitutionary atonement of Christ, there is no salvation for us. Verse 15 says this, And he died for all, So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again 
on their behalf. That's the same word, translated a little differently, for on their behalf. And so the first stone of this doctrinal foundation that Paul lays, the first thing that Paul had concluded, as it were, that compelled him by the love of Christ was this love of Christ that would die in our place. That is very good news for us. That is very good news for us because the Bible is clear about who we are. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Probably the climax of Paul making this point is at the end of our text today in verse 21. Paul says, He, God the Father, made him, Christ the Son, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sinless Savior God makes to be sin. In other words, he treats Jesus as if Jesus had, in fact, committed all of the sins of all of God's people throughout all of time. And he punishes Jesus with that wrath so that we, sinners, rebels, those who had turned away from God, might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus dies in our place that we might receive the inheritance and blessing that only he has warranted. And so that first stone, again, of the doctrinal foundation is that of substitutionary atonement by Christ. The next one that we're going to see is union with Christ. Paul says in the end of verse 14, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. So not only does Christ die in our place and for our benefit, but in his death, all of his people die as well. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, that may sound a little morbid. I mean, these guys are excited about dying. I mean, honestly, right? I, I know that before I came to the Lord, I would have read that and thought, are you kidding me? But here's the thing. What we don't understand is that all of us, all of us are born dead. Dead in our transgressions and sins. We are, we are children of wrath of, according to our own nature. Who we are in relationship to Adam who had committed that first sin and corrupt in nature, corrupt by deeds and corrupt at conception. And so what Paul is talking about is that we are dying in essence to someone who is dead so that we may live in Christ. Charles Spurgeon says, For so it runs, that is to say that the all for whom Christ died, died in his death. His dying in their stead was their dying. He dies for them, they die in him. He rises, they rise in him. He lives, they live in him. Now do you see the progression? If we don't die with Christ, we can't rise with Christ. And if we don't rise with Christ, then really we have never lived at all. It is that resurrection life, it is that new birth that we're gonna see about in just a minute. This, loved ones, is what it means to truly live. And I am bombarded as many of you are all the time. I have a bunch of friends from high school. Man, you gotta understand my high school life. Not Christian at all. I mean, we, we hit the party scene, we did it all. And, and my friends often, and even to this day, man, come on, Nate, don't you wanna live a little? Do you remember when you used to really live? And all I can remember is death. All I can remember is that never was I ever fulfilled in a party. All I wanted to do was go back the next day and do the same thing. You know why? Because it couldn't fulfill me. My heart was longing for something. I was longing for jubilee. I was longing for joy. I was longing for fulfillment. And and I went over and over and over again. And in the same way that the sacrifices in the Levitical system could not 
meet the needs of reconciliation with God and an atonement for man. And so they were done over and over and over again as a reminder, not of their value, but of their ineffectiveness. So too, my life before Christ, looking for fulfillment outside of Jesus. And so until we actually die to that person, until we are at that point where the Spirit of God moves us to say, no, And that is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is not just our amen and yes to God in Christ. And it is all of that. It must be, and this is why I love the prayer of confession that we started the service with. It must also be our no to who we were. It must be a joyful proclamation that that old man has died and that somebody has taken his place. And all of this is based on our union with Christ. When by faith in Christ... We are born again. We are united to Jesus. And what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. We've died with him. The next stone of this foundation, doctrinal foundation that Paul builds for us is this idea of regeneration, being born again, or as Paul talks about here, being a new creature in Christ. Look at verses 16 and 17. Therefore, Paul says, from now on, We recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You ever met somebody who, they kind of like this Jesus idea, this guy a little bit. But what they really wanted was to maintain who they were to not change anything and just add a little Jesus. Because after all, I think I'm going in a pretty good direction. I think I'm doing pretty well. And what I would really like is that God would, in Jesus, be for me and just kind of facilitate and help my plans along. And Paul says that what happens when we actually come to Christ is that the old things have passed away. And behold, he says, new things have come. We are remade caused to be born again in such a way that we gladly watch the old things pass away. Isn't that part of what our Christian life is to be right now? Just pleading with God that by the Spirit of God we would be putting to death the deeds of the flesh and more and more as that residual corruption of our nature remains that we could just watch it pass away more and more. And so then we bellow out with the great hymns and we proclaim loudly and gladly that we cannot wait until that day when all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Paul says that we are new creatures, recreated, that we not only, and this is what's beautiful about the gospel, we not only die with Christ, if that was it, it wouldn't be gospel, it wouldn't be good news, it would just be death. But we don't just die with Christ. Because Christ didn't just die, did he? On the third day, on that first Easter morning, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin, Satan, and death, victorious over our sin, our bondage to it. And we, loved ones, If we will die with Christ, if we have placed our faith in Christ, we will rise with Christ victorious as well. And that is the glory of the gospel. That if we will consider our life as of no value, as nothing but death, then we can rise with Christ. And when he does this, Paul says, he also reorients our mind. Verse 16, therefore we recognize no one according to the flesh. 
Though we have known Christ that way, yet we know him in this way no longer. And this is what happens, isn't it, when you come to Jesus. And sometimes it it happens like a freight train hitting a wall or running into a brick wall, and it's immediate and sudden, and sometimes it's more progressive. And if you were there this morning, you heard about my testimony versus Amanda's, and, and we've seen that in our lives. But this always happens. He will reorient your thinking. And what a gracious gift of God this is, because before he does this, we love death. We love sin and all of that decay that comes with it. And and he reorients our mind so that we recognize no one like we used to in our flesh. And as we're going to see Paul say, this means now that we are ambassadors for Christ. We understand that we have a new job description, as it were. Not a job description like many of our jobs where we're we're doing the nine to five to get the paycheck. But a job description because we are impelled Because it is only this task, this living for Christ, living for the mission of the gospel that can truly sustain and fulfill our souls. And so we see the doctrine of regeneration. Next, verse 18. The final stone that we're going to see this morning in the doctrinal foundation is that of reconciliation. Verse 18, Paul says, Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice what he says. Now all these things are from God. Reconciliation is, at its core, a relational term. Reconciliation talks about the fact that though our relationship with God was broken, though we were by nature, by choice, sinners and therefore enemies of God, We have been taken from a relationship of hostility with God and been reconciled into a relationship of love and favor and blessedness with God. And even though reconciliation is a relational term that deals with us and God, what Paul points us to here is that this reconciliation is an act of the unilateral grace of God. This is an act of God's grace. Now notice what Paul says. Now all these things are from God, who, that is God, reconciled us to himself through Christ. Notice the absence of something in there. Our work. Notice the absence of our work. Paul literally says that all of these things come out from God. They are from him. They don't start within us. They start within God and they flow out from God and we receive them. This is why the gospel is gracious. Grace is something that is received. Grace is something that we we believe in God. We do not work to earn God's favor. God has reconciled us through Christ. We did not reconcile ourselves. A couple weeks ago, I preached through parts of Romans 5. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were yet helpless, Christ died at the right time for the ungodly. That word helpless is a word used to describe illness. It's used in the book of Acts of those who they could not make their way into the streets because remember they were flooding because the apostles by God's grace and to testify to the message of the gospel were performing signs and miracles and healings. And so here are these people and they're invalids. They they are paralyzed. They can't move. And they had absolutely no ability because of their illness to even crawl forward one step to place themselves on the street where even the shadow of the apostles might fall on them and heal them. And so what happened? Because they were helpless, somebody had to come and lift them up and lift their pallets and do all of the work to put them in the place where they could receive that blessing. While we were still helpless, Christ died for us. 
In chapter 10 of Romans 5, again, we read, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. And so that God does not reconcile based on anything that we do, but because of his love for us. And of course, this is why Paul talks about the fact that it is the love of Christ that compels him. Paul recognizes who he is, who all of us are. There's nothing inherent to him. And so finally, we come to the third part, which is the divine commission. The divine commission, which is to say this. We must preach loudly and proudly the free mercies of the grace of God. And as a matter of fact, as you finish Romans chapter 5, as Paul has worked in Romans chapter 4, that justification is by faith alone, in the person of Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, and you work through chapter 5 and you see what Adam has done to us as our representative and what Christ has done for us, and by the time you get to the end of that, Paul says that where sin increases, you remember this, grace abounds all the more. And then in chapter 6, the rhetorical question is this. Well, if our sin increasing means that God's grace increases, and grace is obviously a good thing, shouldn't we continue to sin that grace may abound? And of course, Paul refutes that, but my point is this. When we have proclaimed the gospel and the free, rich mercy of God, it should beg the question at some point, wow, does that mean we should keep sinning? Of course, the answer is no, and Paul goes to regeneration. You don't understand what happens when you become a Christian. You can't do that. But that's how free it is. That's how free the gospel is. And yet the freedom, the freeness of the gospel and the offer does not negate the fact that there is indeed a divine commission on our life. And that's what we see. Now, if we can back up all the way to verse 15. Paul says this, And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And Paul's going to touch, in essence, what we're going to see at the end of this text right now is sort of the job description. What does it look like to live for him who died on our behalf? And Paul's going to say, we have been graciously given a ministry, a service of reconciliation. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Paul's gonna talk about this divine commission in two ways. He's going to talk about first that we have been graciously given this ministry of reconciliation. Understand that we, we hear the word ministry, oftentimes we think of ministers, maybe you think of Pastor Phil or others who you know have borne that term minister of the gospel. And yet the biblical reality is that every one of us who are Christians are ministers of the gospel. It just means that we're called to serve, to serve Christ for the work of the gospel. And here Paul says that we've been given this service of reconciliation. We are those who are called to bring this message that God is reconciling the world to himself through Christ to the world. And it's interesting when he says there that God gave us this. This is a word used to talk about a gift of generosity. It could, it could be translated a grant. Has anybody ever received a grant, right? You, you file the paperwork, you try to get the grant. It's a, a gift of generosity. You don't do anything. You've been granted it. Paul says that we have been granted, graciously given this ministry of reconciliation. And the next thing that Paul tells us at the end of verse 19 
He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is actually kind of a fascinating concept. What it literally says is that God has placed in us, the body of Christ, the church, God has placed in us this message of reconciliation. So now let's think about what's being said. God is the one who reconciles freely. We have done nothing. We have made no movement towards God that has called us to do this, but God has done it, and yet he has placed within us this message of reconciliation. And so in summary, we could say this. that The accomplishment of redemption, the accomplishment of reconciliation between God and man has come forth solely from God through a unilateral movement of divine grace to fallen sinners through the person and work of Jesus. That's the God side of it. And then this. But this message, this message has been graciously and generously placed within the body of Christ so that the reception of this reconciliation cannot take place apart from the ministry of the body of Christ. What a gift that God would allow us to partake in his redemptive work of salvation. And so in verse 20, Paul says simply this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I was actually (laughs) kind of chuckling in a good way, very excited that I get to preach just a little bit on this fact that we are ambassadors for Christ at the embassy. I mean, if that's not fitting, I don't know what is. An ambassador, of course, is an accredited diplomat sent by his country as an official representative in a foreign land. I mean, we are citizens of heaven. This is not our home. We seek a city, not here, but a city made by God. And we are laboring to see people come to know Christ as ambassadors for Christ, to be a part of that, to have that hope, to partake in that city someday. And of course, ambassadors work in their local embassy. So I would just encourage each one of you, especially if you are members and faithful attenders of the embassy church, to wear that as a mantle. Wear that and and loudly and proudly live your life for the glory of Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. And it's interesting. Remember Christ died for us on our behalf and for our benefit. Paul uses the same word here. We are ambassadors for Christ, for the benefit of Christ. So he has died for us and we now live for him. Paul says that as ambassadors, we plead with people as though God himself were making an appeal through us. What an amazing thought. We plead with people as though God Almighty were making an appeal through us for the souls of men. We plead with people on behalf of and for the sake of Jesus. Let me just pause there for a moment. There is no greater honor that could be bestowed on any of us than to plead with people. Now think about what that means. We're pleading for them to come to repentance, to come and know Jesus. So that means that we are doing the most loving thing that we could for them. We could not love in a higher way than that, to plead with them to come and know Jesus, to experience life, resurrection life, to live in such a way that they will never die again. Though physically their bodies may perish, they will live forever. What more could we do for people than that? And not only do we plead with them, but we plead on behalf of Christ. There is nothing, no one, no cause, no mission, no purpose more glorious than pleading on behalf of the Lord of glory himself. 
And so we do the most loving thing we can for people, the absolute most loving thing that we can for people, and we do it on behalf of the absolute most loving, glorious, and wonderful person that we could. I mean, this sounds like a pretty good deal. And then finally, we plead with people to be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. And so, our great enduring message is simply this, that God the Father made Christ the Son to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God with him and all of the blessedness that comes with that so that we might not merely be those who do not receive punishment, but as Paul says, that we would be heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, inheriting all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places because of what Jesus has done for us. And so, friends, when I'm asked by people, why would you want to plant a church? My answer is simply this, because the love that Christ has for me compels me to that end. And that should be motivation enough for any of us. And and there are some of you here today, perhaps I don't know, I don't know any of you very well at all, and, and I pray that maybe that changes, Lord willing that changes, but there may be some of you here today who, who are struggling with this. I'm just not understanding that love. I'm not sure how he could be so excited about this. I mean, great, maybe I can have my sins forgiven. I would just beg you, I would plead with you on behalf of Christ. I would ask you to call upon the name of the Lord to seek him while he may be found because the scripture teaches that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, no exception. And so if you're here today, cry out to him. If you feel guilt over your sin, if you have never experienced that reconciliation, if your view of God is simply that he is judge and not father, Savior, Redeemer, then call upon the name of the Lord. He is merciful and gracious. Let's pray. Father,